<clears throat> one, two, one, two. This is a Romy cast. Never get tired of being Beatles. Uh, when I play the drums, then I play a guitar, and I too play a guitar. What? Is he dead? Sit you down, Father. Rescue. Take 12. Take 12. Take 12. Take 12. Take 12. Take 12. Take that John finally got just after that, and we both of us do what we want to do, do what we want to do. If you think it was more keeping, you know, scrap it. Yes, not bad that one. Keep that one. Mark it fab. Hello, and welcome to another episode of The Walrus Was Paul. A series of podcasts hosted by me, Paul Romanuk. Join me and let's take a stroll along the cast iron shore and peel off the layers of the glass onion with another great musical guest as we discuss their favorite Beatles or Beatles solo album. My guest on this episode, once again, this is the uh, second part of a two-part episode, uh, one of the most successful songwriters of his era, Dan Hill. His soft rock anthem, 1977, Sometimes When We Touch has been in more movies and TV shows than he can count. Uh, it's been covered by, let me see, Tina Turner, Bonnie Tyler, Rod Stewart, uh, Tammy Wynette, and Mark Gray performed the song as a duet. That list goes on. I just gave you a few. Uh, the official video of the song has been played, last time I checked, over 49 million times on YouTube. Uh, Dan is a Grammy Award winner, a nominated for a second Grammy. He's won five Juno Awards, and most recently, Dan was inducted into the Canadian Songwriters Hall of Fame. And he is also a writer, with a new book coming out in the fall of 2023 called The Healing, Confessions of a Biracial Songwriter. So look for that. And uh, oh yes, Dan is also still out there, a working musician, playing shows all over the place. The best place to go and find out where Dan is playing and what he's up to is danhill.com. That's his website. My website and the website for this podcast is romicast.com, R-O-M-Y-C-A-S-T.com. If you head there, you can find each and every episode that we have done so far in this series. This is the 13th episode of Series 3. You can find all of the episodes from this series as well as Series 1 and Series 2 at the website or wherever it is that you get your podcasts. As I referenced, this is part two of a special two-part episode where Dan and I are talking about some of his favorite tracks from the Beatles' 1968 White Album. If you missed part one, I suggest you go back and listen to that first. You can find it wherever you found this podcast. So in episode one, we talked about back in the USSR, Obla Di Obla Da, While My Guitar Gently Weeps, I'm So Tired, Blackbird, and Rocky Raccoon. Uh, Dan, great to see you again. Thanks for taking the time once again to talk to me about the Beatles. Pleasure. Absolutely. So uh, let's dig into your first cut here. It is pure McCartney. 
Why don't we do it in the road? You know, that's the thing is, you know, basically when people think about the Beatles now, we think of them as being wholesome, you know. Remember, the Beatles' biggest competitor at that time, uh, you know, Beach Boys notwithstanding, was really the Rolling Stones, right? And so the Rolling Stones had the reputation of being raw or tougher. They were like the supposedly the bad boys, you know, uh, the anti-establishment group. You know, it's funny because looking back at the Stones now, we don't feel that way. But, um, and I think in some cases... That that piqued uh, Lennon McCartney. That somehow the Rolling Stones got all this cred for being tough and raw and street, and the Beatles were sometimes looked upon as being too wholesome and slick. And so, uh, the th- I think a lot of why don't we do it in the road was was McCartney saying, "Hey, I can get I can get down just like like the Stones can." And also, you really hear in that song, unlike say songs like Blackbird. You really hear the influence of people like Little Richard and Chuck Berry, you know. Even the the way he's singing, the the rawness. What a you know, vocal, eh? Yeah, yeah. And he he had he would sometimes go and scream, scream, scream before he would sing, so his voice would have that really hoarse sound. Remember when he does that in Band on the Run? The rabbits will be good. His voice is just broken, and so I kind of think in in a way that was musically speaking, you know. The result of uh, listening so much to Chuck Berry and Little Richard. I think you know the story, but back in the fifties, you know these seminal black artists were not getting played on radio. They were considered race music, which was code for N-word music, right? And the way that Lennon, McCartney, Jagger, Richard uh, heard these songs is the, the British sailors would go to America. They would buy these bootlegged records. Then they come back to. To, to London, Doc, and then people like Len- this is before any of them knew each other, they would buy these records. So they were hearing all this stu- all these um, really, really raw black blues artists who were not getting played. And that's, that's how, that, that informed their music. So again, when you hear something like, why don't we do it in the road, you can hear the musical influences of those seminal black artists. But, but also I think McCartney in the lyric was, was trying to show that he could be as raw as, say, Jagger and Richards. Uh, McCartney's recollection, this is from his, uh, his book many years from now, uh, and uh, the song was inspired for, to McCartney while he was in Rishikesh watching a couple of monkeys doing it in the road. I didn't know uh, And wow. here's, here's his quote, he says, and I thought, bloody hell... Uh, that puts it all into uh, into perspective. That's how simple the act of procreation is. This bloody monkey just hopping on and hopping off. This is an urge. They do it, and it's done with, and it's that simple. We have horrendous problems with it, and yet animals don't seem to. So that was basically it. I didn't know that. <laughs> that was the inspiration. Uh, it was recorded really late in the in the when they did the White Album. They had all three studios going at Abbey Road, and uh, Lennon and Harrison were working on something. McCartney wanted to do this, so he hopped into another studio just with Ringo and basically bashed it out. Uh, Lennon says, that's Paul. He even recorded it by himself in another room. That's how it was getting in those days. We came in and he'd made the whole record. Him drumming, him playing the piano, him singing, but he couldn't. He couldn't. Maybe he couldn't make the break from the Beatles. I don't know what it was, you know. I enjoyed the track. Still, I can't speak for George, but I I was always hurt when Paul would knock something off without involving us, but that's just the way it was then. 
Well, also, Paul was much more interested in the production process back then, of the actual making of the records. He was very, very curious as to what was going on with George Martin. And uh, whereas Lennon was not as interested in the process of producing these songs, you know, so in that respect, you know, that, that was one of the reasons why McCartney was going into the studio and doing a lot of the stuff himself. Uh, Lennon just was, uh, Lennon got tired of being in the Beatles, obviously, sooner than McCartney, you know. And McCartney was more like the natural entertainer. Remember, his father was an entertainer, yeah. right? Um, so, you know, th that was one of the reasons why it ended up being McCartney all alone in the studio. Lennon was tired of being in the Beatles. McCartney was not tired of being in the Beatles. And, and McCartney was really, really taken with, with production, as you can hear in the records that he made and produced once he was a solo artist. It's a whimsical song for sure. Uh, and... I was listening to some of your old stuff. I was listening to your first album, the self-titled mm -hmm. album, and there's a song on there. And I think it's fair to fair to say um, your songs are pretty serious. There's a lot serious love, uh, heartache. You know, you you mine that vein a, a great deal, and it works. But there was a song called "Looking Back," and it it sounds like you had a great time writing the lyrics. Whoa, looking back at public school, reading Playboy magazines Insisting that the articles were the only thing we'd read Thinking then that love was meant to conquer And if a girl said she liked you, then you'd bonk her Don't you try and lay that much on me Looking back at high school Getting drunk for the local dance Lonely boys and nervous girls Grappling with romance Thinking You know, songs often just kind of write themselves with me, so I just remember really liking the guitar part I was coming up with on the guitar, uh, and it was influenced a little bit by Neil Young's Old Man, uh, you know, in terms of how he opens up Old Man with his guitar part, and that yes. kind of fed into me writing those chords to, to looking back. Uh, funny, though, because when I said, uh, th thinking then that love was meant to conquer, if a girl said she loved you, then you'd bonk her. By bonk her, I meant, you know, I meant being in grade six and bonking you over the head with a piece of uh, cardboard. I didn't mean bonker as a crude way of talking about making love. And so that was one of the few times when I, I kind of had written something that was taken a whole other way. And then, of course, I was embarrassed that people th thought that I would write something so crude. <laughs> it's a fun song, though. Yeah, it was a lot of fun writing it. Does it? Does it still? Is it still? Do you still play it sometimes? Yeah, because I, I, again, one of the things I really like happens to be the chord progressions, because especially in the chorus, it moves in a in a way I really enjoy playing. And put, does it still put a smile on your face? It does, and a lot of people, you know, really like the song for the exact reason that you pointed out. Um, that it's a break from the intensity of a lot of my other songs. I did. I, I just thought it was. Uh, I was listening to the album. I thought, oh wow, that's that's a funny song. You know, funny as in, ah, it's really enjoyable. Uh, puts a smile on your face. The lyrics are great. Uh, Thank you. Yeah. I like going the journey of going from public school to high school to college, and you know, uh, I just liked how how it kind of. Uh, discuss sort of like the, the arc of a person's life. You know? And I'd never linked it in with uh, with the Neil Young old man song right. until, you, until you mentioned it, but it makes perfect sense. Yeah, well, those were the people that were, again, they were my university education, those amazing songwriters. And I, 
I'm not to go off into a rabbit hole. I assume you've met Neil Young. Actually, no. Uh, I, you know, as you know, back in 1985, a bunch of us uh, recorded "Tears Are Not Enough," which was, as everybody I think knows, Canada's answer to America's "We Are the yep. World." It actually ended up raising over three million dollars for famine relief, which is about eight million dollars in today's dollars. So. You know, all the the seminal Canadians were there from Neil Young to Lightfoot to Joni Mitchell to Dan Murray. So, but I can't say, you know, I, I have had, I've met most of these Canadian icons like Joni Mitchell, but I'd have to say that Neil Young was one person I've never formally been introduced to. Mm. Good friends with Gordon Lightfoot. He was one of my best friends. Actually, he, he had me sing one of my songs at one of his weddings. I think it was his second wedding. It's crushing. Man. You know? That must have been. Uh... That must have been a day. I, 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 I just have to ask you about it because you're here. But I mean, the creme de la creme of Canadian music royalty there to record that song. What are your memories of that day? It was a very intense day. I mean, that was a lot of star power in one room. I've never, you know, maybe when I've gone to the Grammy Awards, perhaps, but still, the Grammy Awards is different because you're not working with all these different people at the Grammy Awards. You're just sitting next to whomever, right? But to be in the same, it was a, I think we, we were all there for about six hours or so, you know. So, you know, Corey Hart, Brian Adams, you know, Burton Cummings. It was just so many people yeah. that I remember just feeling, and a lot of people were coming up to me hoping I could introduce them to these people. For some reason, they thought I, I was the guy that knew everybody else. And so it was all that pressure on me. You know, Jane Sibbery, who I think is great, would go, please, Dan, can you introduce me to Joni Mitchell? So... I found that to be really intense too. I was kind of like the the, the diplomat trying to introduce the early, the younger stage <laughs> of, of artist to to the more older and established stage. I can't say that I really enjoyed it because it was just so bloody intense. Uh, but um, you know, at the Canadian Songwriters Hall of Fame induction less than a year ago, we went on stage and sang the song again. And the thing that really struck me was how many of those iconic performers were no longer with us, like Ronnie Hawkins or Oscar Peterson. Uh, so the great thing about, you know, Tears Are Not Enough 85 is that it's really a very interesting assemblance of, you know, these, these the greatest Canadian artists really ever. That hasn't happened since and no. uh, well, may not happen again. I don't think it will. As every day goes by, how can we close our eyes until we open up our hearts? We can learn to share and show how much we care. What a day that must have been. What studio was it at? Manta Sound. Manta Sound was probably the number one recording studio in Toronto at that time. Manta Sound was located at Sherburne in Adelaide. And that's where I recorded my first five albums. And did you just go down and for that day, just go down, walk in like it was another day? I, mean- uh, I, I did go down and walk in. Uh, you know, some of the performers were very, very haughty and conceited, and, and, and they would show up in limousines and all that stuff. And you know, I, I didn't really go that route. I just, I, I just went in there. You know, um, I remember I, I nailed my line on the first take or two lines, and 
fought, David Foster kept at, wanting me to, to try to beat those lines, and I knew I wasn't going to beat them. So finally, he just gave up and said, "Okay, we'll take take your first tag." <laughs> uh, but it was right after Lightfoot too. So that I'm going, wow, that's that's a big that's that's a big act to follow. And who you know? leads the song off? You know, all this again to, to go back to life, but he was he was one of my best friends. You know, he he was one of the first really big performers to to uh, support me. A lot of people didn't like me when I was first hit the scene at 21. Uh, Stomp and Tonic Connors took took a real hate, hate on to me and would call me a general jumper that I didn't deserve to be Canadian because I wrote with Americans. You know, so one of the great things about Lightfoot and Ronnie Hawkins is that they accepted me immediately. So I always feel very grateful to Lightfoot and he taught me so much. And and uh, for those of you, just to put this in context, this is being recorded not long after the passing of Gordon Lightfoot. Uh, so, I mean, it's it, it just such a loss for Canadian music. Just as a as a fan, I, I, I met the man once, um, but uh, it, I mean, he's a, he's a part of your, it's part of your life. Oh, those songs, it's part of, you know. He lent me five thousand dollars. He lent me his Learjet in 1977. Yeah. I was having girlfriend problems. You know, he said, "I'll lend you the, I'll lend you the jet, but there's no woman in the world worth five thousand dollars." <laughs> <laughs> what a legacy, though, man. Yeah, man. one of his one of his last words were, "I had a good run." So, talk about an understatement. Uh, we'll go on to the last uh, couple of songs, uh, selections, sure. uh, eight and nine for you, but uh, they they go back to back uh, okay. and they close out side two of the White Album. And it is it is really interesting the way they sequence it because it's 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 a, a beautiful McCartney song followed by a beautiful Lennon song. So we'll go with the McCartney song first, I Will. Who knows how long I've loved you? You know I love you still will I wait a lonely lifetime if you want me to I will this is uh, again one of the Beatles most memorable uh, abilities is to write these kind of beautiful memorable highly melodic love songs you know unconditional love you know uh, and this kind of song kind of conjures up songs like uh, If I Fell and uh, Michelle, Michelle My Bell. You know, it's kind of in that tradition of songwriting that I will is. Um, the other thing that's very interesting, it's a very short song. I think it's under four minutes. I think it's something crazy like one minute and 49 seconds, so I could be wrong. What's really interesting is how much McCartney managed to impart in such a short period of time, you know. Uh, again, it was such a great and natural song that I wouldn't listen to it saying the song is so short because it, it didn't feel short. How did he manage to pack so much information into such a short period of time? I can't think of another song. The only songs that came close to writing came close to those kind of songs might have been Ashford and Simpson writing songs like "Ain't No Mountain High Enough." You know, those were the only other song. That was the only other songwriting team that was able to write such brilliant songs in under two minutes. No one did that. Uh, it was. Uh, it, it was took a lot of work for such a simple song. Uh, they started work on it <clears throat> at 7 o'clock in the evening on September 16th, 1968. They finished 3 o'clock the following morning. Uh, 65 takes. Wow. Take 65 was deemed the best. This is McCartney's recollection. 
I was doing a song I will that I had a melody for for quite a long time, but I didn't have any lyrics to it. I remember sitting around with Donovan and maybe a couple of other people. We were just sitting around one evening after our day of meditation in Rishikesh, and I played him this one, and he liked it, and we were trying to write some words. We kicked around a few lyrics, something about the moon, but they weren't very satisfactory, and I thought the melody was better than the words, so I didn't use them. I kept searching for better words, and I wrote my own set in the end. Very simple words, straight love song words, really. I think they're quite effective. It's still one of my favorite melodies that I've written. You just occasionally get lucky with the melody, and it becomes rather complete, and I think this is one of them, a complete tune. Well, again, talk about an understatement. It's a classic. It's, it's a classic. It's not just a, a, that he did a good job or that's a good song. It's, it's like an unparalleled song. Um, and again, interesting that it took so many takes because it feels so natural and fresh, the, the, the version that they came up with. And again, interesting just how, how, how sparse the instrumentation is. Uh, you have Lennon. Uh, he's playing acoustic guitar and singing. Lennon uh, is the guy beating the wooden sticks known as skulls and keeping time. And Ringo played some other percussion instruments, bongos, maracas, and cymbals. Uh, George Harrison does not appear on that track. Uh, and that song finishes, and it goes into one of Lennon's most personal songs, Julia. Half of what I say is meaningless But I say it just to reach you, Julia Well, Julia is, I think most of us know the name of his mother. And uh, you really can hear the tenderness and the ache in Lennon's voice when he sings this. I mean, the performance is equal to the song itself. You know, and uh, I just think about the, the, really, the tragedy that both Lennon and McCartney lost their mothers when they were very young. And both turned to music. As a way of trying to trying to uh, you know trying to heal from, they were both very very close to their mothers, you know, and uh, when their mothers were ripped out of their lives, you know, the, the, they only the, the grieving was just so palpable that they again I don't believe they would have written the kind of songs that they wrote had they not gone to music to to, to heal from this enormous loss. So very interesting that both of these men you know suffered a lot of the same losses. And then process that through 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 writing. Um, I think in some ways it's one of my favorite John Lennon songs because it, because of what what he's addressing and when he's singing just the way he sings Julia, you can see you can sense just how desperately he misses. You can his you can hear it in his voice, yeah. can't you? Yeah. Oh my, yeah. Uh, his mom died in a road accident in 1958, and it's the only solo Lennon recording in the entire Beatles canon. It's just wow. just John Lennon. Um, a couple of nice things with it. A beautiful thing about the song, I think, uh, and you can hear this on one of the anthology recordings, even though it was just a John Lennon song and he was the only one playing on it, you hear in the talk back, sitting up in the control room of Studio 2, encouraging him 
Paul McCartney. Oh, beautiful. Yeah. That's beautiful. <laughs> it was till then. There was just the one, wasn't it? <laughs> I couldn't. Couldn't I go from there? You know, because it. <laughs> no. Because that one was perfect, wasn't it? <laughs> it was the last song. Uh, to be started for the White Album. He recorded three takes of the song, uh, double-tracking his vocals and acoustic guitar to take three. And that is what we hear. Uh, but, uh, yeah, I, I just think that's such a lovely story. It is. Um, and it is it's a very... I mean, I mean, I kind of feel sad just thinking about the song, but sad in a good way, if that makes sense. Yeah, it's a, it's a beautiful song. Um, and Lennon, he added the, the lines of, when I cannot speak my heart, I can only speak my mind. And uh, th that came from um, Gibran. Um, when life does not find a singer to sing her heart, she produces a philosopher to speak her mind. Oh, yeah, wow. That's what inspired Amazing. that line for him. Uh, lots of imagery, seashell eyes. Mm -hmm. Beautiful. Uh, and, and what a, so what on. a description, yeah. But, uh, beautiful, beautiful yeah. song. Uh, no, no, Lennon, maybe more. So I, I would... They both had their moments, but Lennon, if you're generalizing, and it's never entirely fair to generalize, but maybe more than McCartney... He has more personal themes that run through his music, certainly his solo work, you know, a song like Mother, uh, but we have Julia on this album, I Want You, She's So Heavy from Abbey mm -hmm. Road, you know, just mm -hmm. his, his, his almost painful love for Yoko at the time. Um, very confessional. And, and I would... I certainly get that vibe from your catalog, Dan, and it's again, it's never fair to generalize because not every song is like that. But your stuff, to me, comes across as you're, you're there's some raw nerves there, and you're you're picking at them for your artistry. But I want to ask you, and maybe there's no definitive answer to this question: as an artist or a songwriter, which you are, why put yourself out there like that? Well, I think that was my way of, um, you know, dealing with the world. You know, there was a lot, you know, none of us are immune. All of us are part of the legion of walking wounded. We all, on one, one way or another, have suffered and endured some kind of trauma, you know. And so for me, you know, there, there was a lot of, there's a lot of trauma growing up as the only black or biracial family in, in all Don Mills when we moved moved to Don Mills in the early 60s. And uh, I did feel kind of alienated and like I didn't fit in. And songwriting was my way of processing that, you know, uh, you know, by, by writing. And <laughs> this is true uh, that mostly girls in high school didn't like kind of bookish, kind of nerdish guys. Uh, they kind of tended, generally speaking, not always to go for the jocks and the class clowns and the bad boys, you know. And people like myself or, or my brother were, were were kind of ignored by by girls, so that that made us feel maybe a little bit inadequate, which then in turn made us jump really harder and deeper into our creative process because we felt like we didn't measure up. Uh, and again, one of the advantages of not having girls' attention when you're in high school is you got all that time to write because you're not losing all that time going out with girls. So <laughs> I think there was a lot of that too. That you know, they used to call me Deep Dan. You know, 
because they just didn't, they couldn't really understand why I was writing that kind of stuff. Also, you know, growing up, my mom had a lot of mental health problems and that was really hard. And back in the 60s, you couldn't talk about that kind of stuff. And so the abandonment I was feeling from my mom always being taken to psych wards uh, also, you know, made me dive into music more to kind of process the, the uh, abandonment I was feeling. It, it certainly, uh, you know, your story certainly pays uh, pays homage or, or makes it a, a bit more of a truism that uh, uh, suffering begets great art. Yeah, yeah, and again, I mean, going back to the Beatles and Lennon's Julia, yeah. you know, or even yesterday, you know. Um, I mean, it's it's a song of loss. All my troubles seem so far away. Now it seems as though they're here to stay. Oh, I believe in yesterday. The thing about McCartney is that he takes those very, very intense lyrics of loss and change and getting older and losing. The, but he 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 then puts it together with this kind of more like light music, not light in a derivative or negative way, but he offsets the intensity of what he's feeling lyrically with lighter music, whereas, whereas Lennon would, would not go light. You know, So if Lennon's writing Julia, it, there's not light music to support that theme, which is why he seems to come across as more personal. It's his music, whereas McCartney fools us into thinking he's not personal when he really is, because his music is so kind of happy, for lack of a better word. Yeah, right? yeah. Yeah. Uh, next track you want to talk about, and uh, one of my favorite, uh, completely McCartney, vocals, acoustic guitar, drums, timpani, bass, uh, beautiful arrangement from George Martin, uh, Mother Nature's Son. kind of wistful yeah very wistful song uh and again it kind of goes it unfolds in a structure that is very unusual you can't predict with with those kind of songs where they're going to go a lot of songs that you hear you kind of know where the chords are going it's already kind of laid out within the first uh, 30 seconds of the song those kind of songs you don't know where they're going they're taking one left turn after the other but at the same time the chord changes are so seamless that you don't realize that you're being tricked into a progression that you can never predict. Uh, certainly uh, bears mentioning George Martin's beautiful arrangement mm -hmm. that he writes in this. Uh, we haven't talked about George Martin. Where does he rate for you in terms of being an arranger? Because you've worked with many. Well, he was quite quite brilliant, you know, and um, he was the one, as we all know, the Beatles were rejected by a lot of labels before. They were signed by, I believe it was Capitol Records. And George Martin was really the, the person who discovered the Beatles because they went and auditioned for him, right? And so uh, he had the vision to realize the enormous uh, potential they had because at that time they hadn't really come into their own as writers, right? Uh, as you pointed out earlier in our talk, they were doing a lot of great uh, covers, you know. Uh, you know, so... Um, his his um even even on a record like yesterday you know the production he also 
One of the best things you can do as a songwriter and as a producer is to know what not to say, to know what instruments to leave out. And remember, as McCartney said, the Stones always did it second. So they came out with Yesterday, and then the Stones came out with As Tears Go By. If you check out the arrangement to As Tears Go By, it's very similar to the arrangement of, of Yesterday. So I would say at the time that there was no producer greater than, than George Martin, though it certainly didn't hurt that he had... I can't think of any white rock and roll singers that were at, were better than Lennon and McCartney. You know, um, you know, I can't think of any that even come close. So he, the great thing, the fortunate thing with George Martin is he had the best songwriting team, arguably of all time, in in, in rock and roll music, and the best singers of all time, and the best musicians of all time. So <laughs> he had really a stacked deck. But that being said. He he uh, he equaled the the prodigious talent of the Beatles by coming up with very interesting arrangements. Uh, the song was inspired by uh, a lecture that the Maharishi had given when they were in India, uh, talk, talking about uh, nature. John Lennon's recollection is uh, that was from the lecture that the Maharishi gave about nature. I had a piece called "I'm Just a Child of Nature," which turned into "Jealous Guy" years later. Oh, why? Yeah. Both inspired from the same lecture by the uh, Maharishi. And uh, McCartney worked with George Martin on the brass arrangement, uh, and uh, they uh, they sort of wrote it and recorded it that day. And elsewhere in the studio, yeah, lots going on. Uh, the other Beatles were all working on Your Blues. Okay, uh, John yeah, Lennon's sure. Song, so. Yeah, uh, Next track we want to talk about, and uh, this one, uh, I mean, some call it the original heavy metal record, uh, Helter Skelter. <laughs> This really conjures up the early influences of Lennon McCartney from, again, I can't hear Helter Skelter without thinking about Little Richard, you know, and, uh, and the rawness of, of Little Richard's records, his singing, his guitar playing, even his stage antics, you know. Um, and so, in Helter it was kind of almost like a menacing kind of song, you know. Not, not necessarily the lyrics, though, though Helter Skelter is kind of, gives you a sense of kind of pandemonium and, and, and kind of mayhem, you know. Uh, but there's a menacing element to that song in the music and in the vocal performance. And uh, we all know that then it was co-opted by by Manson, you know. Yeah. But um, it, it was a very kind of almost a sort of a, to me, it was almost like a threatening song. You know, it kind of scared me a little bit. That's how powerful the, the, and I can't think of any other song that did that in terms of the Beatles catalog. McCartney's recollection uh, in a, an interview with Radio Luxembourg, uh, that came about just because I had read a record review uh, which said, 
Uh, and this group really got us go, really got us wild, echoing everything. They're screaming their heads off. And I just remember going, oh, wow, it'd be great to do one like that. Pity they've already done it. Must be great. Really screaming record. And then I heard their record, and it was quite straight. And it was very sort of sophisticated. It wasn't rough and screaming and tape echo at all. So I thought, oh, well, we'll do one like that then. And I had this song called Helter Skelter, which is just a ridiculous song. So we did that because uh, I like the noise. And also, again, the, the importance of the sounds of words being even more important than the meaning. So Helter Skelter, uh, the way the sound and the chords you know, support Helter Skelter is what, because in and of itself, if you write a song called Helter Skelter, you're going to think, well, that doesn't really make much sense. But when you hear it juxtaposed with the music that's underpinning it, it suddenly makes all the sense in the world. And in terms of the Manson thing, uh, Lennon dismissed Manson as uh, just an extreme version of the type of listener who read false messages into Beatles lyrics, such as those behind the 1969 Paul is Dead rumor. Lennon also said that all that Manson stuff was this bull around George's song about pigs, piggies, and uh, and this one, Paul's song about an English fairground. It has nothing to do with anything, least of all to do with me. Right. So he was pretty dismissive yeah. of the whole thing. Uh, so those are the 11 tracks wow. that you have picked. Uh, there are so many more on there we can yeah, talk there about. Are. Yeah. Uh, any that jump out at you? I think it's your blues. You know that that one's pretty. Uh, it's it's kind of a again sort of dark. You know that sounds more like a Lennon. I could be wrong. A, a yeah, Lennon influenced song. Uh, yes, I'm It's kind of like it feels almost like it's been hastily put together, uh, so it's not. It's a little bit rawer and not as seamless and exquisite as some of the other songs, like for example, "I Fell" or, or even "Julia." Uh, uh, but there's something kind of um, there's a desperation to that song that really, really uh, hit, hit me very hard when I was listening to it at 14. I was uh, listening to your first album. Um, really enjoyed going back and revisiting it and in your song seed of music uh you sing I, I love this line lord don't let this crazy world make a jukebox out of me let the songs keep flowing strong and naturally so all these years later i gotta ask you have they i've never yet felt like a jukebox um you know that was interesting because that was one of my first songs that was getting, I was starting to get covers at that time, but interestingly, only from black artists. So Cleo Lane, who's the iconic black jazz singer in England, cut seated music, and then uh, Jose Feliciano heard me sing it at a party, and then he wanted to cut the song and, and have me sign to his publishing company. So that was the song that kind of opened up the doors for me as a songwriter. The early rap on me was I was going to be a very successful songwriter, but not a successful artist. You know, so that was the song that started getting people interested in cutting my songs. So, looking back on this album, uh, we've been talking about it for the last the last hour plus or hour and a half. Uh, what are your sort of final thoughts on the White Album? What it's meant to you? Our conversation? Well, just that, that, that what an enormous gift to the world we got from the Beatles records, uh, the White Album being a really, really good example because of the wealth of material on that album. As you point out, it's their only double album. Uh, 
I don't think we were aware at the time of just what a what a legacy, what an enormous gift to the world the Beatles were. Again, as as we started out this this talk, you know how they came to be in America anyway after the Kennedy assassination. It was sort of like God had waved this magic wand and said, "Here's part of the healing. Here's part of the light that's going to get us through this turmoil, this chaos, this utter darkness." Because remember, there was all sorts of other stuff going on: Vietnam War, you know, the race riots, you know, crazy uh, FBI tapping everybody's phones. You know, we were so we could never ever pay back the Beatles for what they gave to us for what they contributed to the world. It's, if there's ever an example of how, how important art is in, a lot, in all of our lives and in society, uh, it would have to be the Beatles. Well, what a pleasure this has been. I have so enjoyed the chance to meet you and talk about music. Uh, I should do this, by the way. Big thank you to our mutual pal, Barry Keane, a longtime drummer with the Gordon Lightfoot Band. And, of course, uh, Barry has been on this podcast uh, a couple of times now, three times, I think. And uh, it was funny the way this all happened. I got an email one day from Barry, and it said, uh, Hey, uh, having lunch with Dan Hill. would you be uh, interested in uh, having him on your podcast? He thinks he'd be interested in coming on. <laughs> I was like, yeah, that'd be great. <laughs> so thanks to Barry Keene for making it all happen. Uh, Dan, an honor and a pleasure. Thanks again. The honor's been mine, Paul. Thank you so much for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Uh, again, look for all things Dan Hill at his website, danhill.com. You will find his uh, up-to-date information about where he's playing. As this is being recorded, it is early in the summer of 2023, so he is out there playing some summer shows. You can find all the information you need at his website, danhill.com. And keep an eye out for a book that he has coming out in the fall of 2023 called The Healing Confessions of a Biracial Songwriter. So look for that. If you have enjoyed this episode or any of the episodes for that matter, please consider making a donation to support the ongoing production of this little podcast. Any little donation helps. You can offer your support if you visit the website and click on the support the walrus button. If you enjoy the podcast, please consider if you can afford it supporting it with a donation. Thanks. You can follow the podcast on all the usual socials. On Twitter and Instagram, I can be found at the handle Romanuk Paul. On Facebook, do a search for the Walrus Was Paul podcast page. And if you'd like to get in touch, you can email me at the.romicast at gmail.com. That is the dot romicast at gmail.com uh, positive reviews and shares on your social channels also always a big help uh, next time on the walrus was paul east coast singer and songwriter chris picco stops by to talk about what is for many an underappreciated gem of an album beatles for sale well, it's an over, you know, an overlooked record. It's probably seen as, you know, people say it's the weakest record. You know, I, I don't think they they have a, a bad record, okay? But you know, you look in the books, you read the books. It's like, you know, it's known as well. Maybe it was the quickest. They had to slap this one together. But I'm, it's still an impressive record, and there's a lot of milestones on this record, and I think it gets overlooked sometimes. So, 
I still think it's a gem of a record. That's Chris Picco next time on The Walrus Was Paul. Uh, just a quick moment here for uh, what have I been listening to lately? What have I been listening to lately? Uh, nothing new, I'm afraid. A uh, bit of a stroll down memory lane for me this past week. I gave Paul McCartney's 1982 album Tug of War a listen. Hadn't listened to it for a while. It is a brilliant record for me, which conjures up very happy memories of the summer of 1982. It was sort of my go-to album that summer. It was my first summer back from university, and I remember hanging out with old high school friends as we all talked about our lives laid out there in front of us all those years to come, and that's now over 40 years ago. Wow. Uh, I remember how happy it made me as well uh, seeing the video for the single Take It Away. Remember that? Uh, It had Ringo, Paul, and even George Martin was in the video. They were all in there and playing together. Uh, A great record. If you haven't played it in a while, it is definitely worth a revisit. That is Paul McCartney's Tug of War. Uh, That is it for this edition of The Walrus Was Paul. I'm Paul Romanuk. Until next time, so long. Do you ever get tired of being Beatles?